Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so we are now going to break this down and go line by line and see what is Jesus trying to communicate to this church. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The angel, as we see, it's gonna, each letter is going to start out like that. It could mean that it's kind of to the pastor. For the local application, it's to the passenger or the messenger, the one who gives God's message to the people. And so that's kind of where he's going with. But it also represents, represents excuse me, the church as a whole. The letter's not to just one dude. It's to the entire church as a whole. And he says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus pulls out one of the little descriptions of him from chapter 1, and he says that he's the one who's holding the seven stars in his right hand. Again, we're told that these stars are the pastors of the churches. You know, they're called by God to lead his churches. And what I see when I see him holding these pastors in his hand as he's talking in the church, he's saying, guys, I know how to handle these guys. No matter how crazy you think your pastor is, I have him in the palm of my hand. I can guide him. I can use him. No matter how goofy they may be, no matter how many cheesy jokes they tell, I'm, no, I'm known for that. Um, it, it, he's like, I have them. For me as a pastor, this is a great, great verse because I can have confidence that Jesus is guiding me, leading me as I've asked him to. I can have confidence. He says, yes, that's what it looks like in reality. Remember, this is not just a crazy vision. This is giving us a revelation. It's revealing how things really are. Really, God is controlling and holding these pastors. Does that mean pastors never make mistakes? No, not at all. They can jump out of the hand and do whatever they want to do. But if by humility and faith they were to stay in that hand, God says, I will use churches. I will use pastors. And he says here, he walks in the midst of, of the golden lampstands. And we're told in chapter 1 that these lampstands are the churches, all the churches. And so Jesus here, he's seen walking around in the middle of his churches. 
Jesus is into the church. It is his bride. It is his home. It is his family. Now, sometimes I hear people say, I just don't see God moving in my life right now. I I don't feel really close to the Lord. And I ask them, are you going to church? And they say, no, I'm not legalistic. And I say, oh, but we know that Jesus is walking around in the midst of the lampstands. So why don't you go to where you know he's going to be? Instead of hanging out in your living room, mopey, wopey, I just made up a word. Instead of being prideful and staying away from God's precious, loved family and flock, why don't you humble yourself, come to church and see what God would speak to you? Meet with Jesus. That's a big lesson. Some people say, my church is up in the mountains with the trees and the birds and the rocks. And I say, great, God's there but you can receive no special revelation from him. You're not going to receive a word from him up there. You can see a general, oh, God's powerful. God's creative. But you are not going to hear a word from your life like, repent, sinner. And sometimes we need to hear that, don't we? Sometimes we do. I know I do. I need to hear God speaking to me. And where is he walking around? What is he into? Where can I know I can have a meeting with Jesus Christ? At church. Go to church. You'd, hear, you'd expect to hear your pastor say that, but here, Jesus is telling you, go to church. Oh, I don't feel close to the Lord, and I'm not going to church. Well, they're absolutely related. Well, you don't understand how bad things are. Go to church. Well, you don't understand how good things are. I don't need church right now. Go to church. Well, I need rest. Go to church. Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you what? Boom. Well-taught church. Well, I just feel like I need to serve God. Go to church, right? There's never a reason where going to church is not the best option for you. But I'm not into church. Big whoopee. He is. Jesus is. So change your attitude and go to church. God will bless you and meet with you, use you, give you rest, and speak to you. Those are, that's uh, what I see with him walking around in those. So church history lesson real quick. It became real trendy in the early church in the 100s, 200s, 300s, and stretching into the 400s even, uh, years after the church, for uh, the leaders of the church to isolate themselves and go out into the desert, find a place to hide, and get away from the world. It was called asceticism. Asceticism. And uh, it, what it did is it made them think and feel like they were more holy than the world. They thought the world was so corrupt that it was just ugh, making everything icky around them. And so they would go and they would find a cave and they would say, oh yeah, we'll still love and minister to the people of God, but they need to come out to where I'm at in the cave because I don't want to be in those er- dirty cities. They really didn't do anything except pray and read the Bible. And, and some people think, yeah, they really had it right. And so they, they even start to try to imitate that today. And they move up to the mountains and build a compound and get away from the world. But really, this is a fail. This is not what God ever intended. 
It's being disobedient to the commands of Jesus of interacting with the world around them. They didn't follow the book of Acts. When in the book of Acts do you ever see anyone going away from a city? Never. All the missionary trips were to cities, the worst place where there was the most people so they could have the biggest effect. They were not scared of the temples and the idol worshipers and the scary things. They were there to minister to them, to love them, and to save them. And so that's, that's if, when you're wondering, how should I live my life, do what's in the book of Acts. Minister to people, love people, care for them, like they did in the book of Acts. So by this time where this book is written, which is probably about 97 AD, I'm not going to fight you on that date, but it's probably around 97 AD. By this time, the church is already kind of infected with this idea of we need to get out of the world. They're so messy and ugly. Let's start our own nation with our own rules and let's keep all the Muslims out. And there we go. We'll be safer. We'll be better if we just do that. The church was messed up. That is not God's will or God's heart. Jesus says in verse 2, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. He said, those things are fine. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and, have, and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. During this first just 70 years of the church, many false doctrines sprang up. You had people who thought that Jesus was just a man. And then you had people who thought that Jesus was just God. And then you had people who thought Jesus was just a ghost. He had all these different viewpoints. And then people would say, well, I was with Jesus, and so I know exactly what he meant and what he taught, so I am an apostle too. And then they would be spreading these weird teachings. And so what this church did that was really good is that they checked out each story and they found out who was really with Jesus and who lines up with the ones we know were with Jesus, with Paul, Peter and, and Paul and John and James. And they found the ones that were liars and they kicked them out. So Jesus has said, great, great job. But you might be thinking, well, I thought the Bible said, judge not. Doesn't it say that? Yes, it does say that. But the word judge there has a, is a difference than the word test here. The word judge there means to judge to condemnation, meaning you are going to hell no matter what you do or what you say. You can't go around saying that. You don't know if that person's going to repent. You don't know. And so we're told that we are to know false brothers by their works and by their fruits. This is not judgment for condemnation, but for identification. And it's very important for the church to not be sin sniffers, but to be fruit inspectors. That is our responsibility. If I see your life is dominated by hate, I'm going to have to call you on it. And say, bro, are you, is Jesus really your Lord? Because I'm making a judgment here that you're not loving like he says to be. So that's, that's this difference in judging. Also, it says that they didn't grow weary. They didn't give up. They were in it for the long haul. They were doing a good job in that. These are all great attributes, works, labor, and patience, perseverance, patience again listed, labor, not getting weary. 
He's saying, you've hung in here. You've been steady and you desire to serve me. Uh, You're willing to wait for the good blessings of the Lord. This is kind of like a tough marriage, actually, when you think about it. When you know the right things to do and you just keep doing them because you're married and you know the right thing to do is to just keep doing good things, right? It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of labor, a lot of patience, a lot of perseverance, a lot of not being weary, but what's missing in all these things I'm saying? Love. Love is missing. We So... We've seen in this letter so far the revelation of Jesus, that he's walking in the lampstands, that he's there in his church. Not because he has to be, because he loves them. We've seen his encouragement. He's like, you guys are working hard, and I see that, and it's good. But now we get to see the correction. Something is missing, like the special sauce not being on a Big Mac or salt on french fries. Anyone ever get french fries? that they forgot to salt them. Oh, awful, terrible. When something important is missing, it can make a big difference. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. He does not say lost your first love. He says, left your first love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul teaches us about love, and he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. So he's saying, I can say anything. I could say the most beautiful sentences. Oh, you're the greatest. You're the most wonderful. You're this and that and the other. But it's super annoying if I don't really love you, is what he's saying. This church was full of good works. They worked hard, but they didn't really bless the people that much that they were with because they weren't loving. And in fact, they were kind of annoying like this sounding brass. I was going to just bring in some cymbals and just bang them for a minute straight and see how you guys like that. But I thought I would spare you and just let you imagine and think, my pastor really loves me because he didn't do that. This is what they sounded like. This was their message. Do this. Do that. Obey. Just do it. Efforts. Discipline. Those are the words they said. Now, all those words are not bad, but when you don't combine those words with love, they are a clanging symbol. If you guys would turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 15. Keep your finger in Revelation. But in Luke chapter 15, go ahead and turn there. This church of Ephesus, they were more focused on serving God than loving God and loving God's people. So I got a question for you. Is that you? Are you really worried about doing the right thing all the time? Or are you sensitive about how you do what you do? Who you do it with? Jesus, he tells us, he teaches us about this in Luke chapter 15. This is the story of the prodigal sons and the father. And what we're going to see here is that God isn't looking for servants 
or slaves, he is far more interested in having sons. God is not interested in you working for him. He's interested in your love. All right, let's read in chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, then he said, a certain man had two sons. So right off the bat, we know that we're going to get a contrast between these two sons. There's two parts to the story, and this is going to be a contrast. Number tw- or Verse 12. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me my portion of goods that falls to me. In other words, he's saying, I wish you were dead, so I want my money now. That's what this son is saying. I wish you were dead. I hate you, basically, and I want your stuff. So he divided to them his livelihood. So the, fa- the father here, who speaks of God, of course, he doesn't force him to stay. He even shows him grace and love when his son is a jerk. So the father, he's making his own decisions on what, to, what he's going to do, and he's saying, son, you're a jerk, but I love you anyway. I'm all about love. So I'm going to give you this. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I will perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice what he's saying here. So this younger son, he he comes to the end of himself and he realizes how foolish he's been and he figures that he should go back to be a slave of his father. He figures that's the way to fix this, going back to be a slave. He has no idea that his father would forgive such a terrible thing and the terrible sins that he has done. That doesn't even cross his mind. He just wants to try and work for his father's favor and his father's love. And this is what we do all the time. This is what we tend to do. We sin and we try to make it up to God with more labor, more efforts, and more devotion. But I want to ask you this question. Is that what God wants? Is it what he asks for? Verse 20, then he arose and came to his father. Well, if you ever find yourself in this condition, do that. Do that. Arise and go to your father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So the father hasn't changed. He's still what? loves his son. The father loves his son, not because of what his son does, 
but he is free to love his son no matter what his son does. The father will not be convinced to treat his son differently by his son's stupid actions. The father has made his decisions what kind of man he is, and he is a loving man. No matter how hard his son tried to make him mad, he maintained his love. Why? Because he's free. He does whatever he wants, and his choice as a sovereign being is to love. Aren't we lucky to have a God like that? To have a father like that? So amazing. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So the son begins to speak the the rehearsed words to try to sway his father's heart, but he soon realizes that it's not even needed. The father is already too busy restoring his son and bringing blessings to his son for him to even worry about the words that his son is trying to do to manipulate him. The father's like, no, no, stop. Don't worry about that. I have already decided I love you, and I had decided that before you left, dummy. I have shown you that I love you every step of the way. Why do you doubt me? The father loves him, and he didn't need anything to to experience that love, this son, except to show up, just be in his father's presence. Be there. Stay with him. We learn in John chapter 15, this is called abide. Remain with his first love or the one who loved him first. And just like that, he has all that he has ever needed again. He's complete again. He's tender again. And they begin to be merry, which means his joy is restored. That's God's intention in all this. He wants you to have the joy of a right relationship with him. But Now we get to the contrast. This is the really amazing part. This is the part that the church of Ephesus needs to hear. And again, we have four applications. That church, the whole church, so I think our whole church needs to hear this. But me, I need to hear this. And you, you need to hear this. Now the older son was in the field. What do you think he's doing in the field? Working, that's right. And he came. And drew drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. So therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your command at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. So he said to him, Son, 
You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and he is alive again, and he was lost and is found. This older brother is like Ephesus. They've been working so hard. They've been faithful. But at some point, they missed the entire boat. They missed the whole point of the whole thing, which is love. This brother was wrong to think that serving is what his father wanted from him. The older brother was just as wrong as the younger brother. The younger brother's like, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And the older brother says, God wants me to work for him and serve him. And it's such a burden. His father wanted love. His father wanted the love of a son, not a slave. He already had hired servants. Why was the father so excited when his, young, his younger son returned to, with humility and obviously broken? Why was the father so excited? Because the dad, the father, was lonely. He already had one son living at home who thought he had to earn his father's love. And that son wasn't spending any time with his father, even though they lived in the same house. He thought that he was his, hire, his father's hired man, hired servant. He thought he wouldn't please him unless he put in 70-hour weeks and gave everything he had. He had left his first love. Both sons did. One left it for sin and self-gratification. The other left it for works, efforts, and self-sufficiency. And both needed to repent, but which one does? Only the younger son. The one who was religious and self-righteous and thought, I go to church. I'm fine with God. That one didn't repent, and he never is restored to this close relationship with God. He never experiences the love that God said, the Father said, you've always had everything. You asked for a skinny cow. I wanted to give you the fatted calf. You wanted the young calf? Why do you think I'm like that? I'll give you everything you need. I am your Father. We will either feel the emptiness of our self-gratified lives, which are fun for a season, or we will feel the hopelessness and bitterness of our self-sufficiency. Those are the two options besides repent and be close to Jesus, receive the Father's love. And it's so sad because the Father is just loving. He, he just loves. He, he, he never demonstrates a different character trait, does he? He's always just loving. And he's waiting to shower us with his love and blessings. And all he requires from us is repent and come to me. Oh, rise and come. Realize where you're in and come to me. And there's no need for you to say, I'll earn it back. I'm just going to wrap my arms around you and cry for having my son back and having your love. We got to repent of self-gratifying sins and we have to repent of our self-sufficient efforts. Both. Neither one of them. People say, oh, I don't really care what God wants me to do. I'm going to live licentiously. I'm no rules for me. I'm going to do whatever I want. Licentious. It means I have a license to sin. That's not right. You've got to repent. Then there's the other side to say, well, I'm going to put all kinds of rules on me. Legalism. 
And I think that by serving God and working for God, that's going to make him happy. No, repent of that too. There's one way that's in the middle, which is love God and receive his love and trust in grace, God's Holy Spirit, to make you right. Our self is the problem in both of these situations. We are the only ones keeping the love out. We are the ones leaving our first love by our commitment to trust in ourselves. We think we can decide what's the best way to go. Either I choose what's right and wrong and I do whatever I want to do, or I choose I'm going to follow all his rules and think that that's going to get me in. Neither one of them are what he asks. He says, just repent and come to me. Now he says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, back in Revelation, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstands, lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So here he gives the three instructions for them of what they need to do. He says, first, remember. Like the prodigal son, the younger one who remembered his father, he thought back to the love his father always showed him. We need to think back to how much God loved you and what he did when he gave his son to die for you on the cross. This is key. Let your mind and your heart focus on Jesus. That's why he says, remember. So step one, if you feel like maybe you're this church of Ephesus, the Holy Spirit is counseling you and he's saying, you have left your first love. The step one is to remember him and what he does. Not to think, what do I need to do? But no, what did Jesus do for me already? How did he already take care of this? Jesus died on the cross showing he loved me and he's provided everything I need. It was finished, he said. Number two, he says, repent, which means confess your wrong. Confess your dependency on yourself and repent of it. Say, I, I'm wrong for trusting in myself. The word confession means to agree with God. So we agree with God that his love is all that we need. We agree with God that his ways are right and my ways are wrong. So remember what Jesus did. Repent, confessing we're wrong and he's right. And then number three, it says, do the first works. Which means what? Remember that this is all about relationship. What were the first works that got you into this family of God? It was relationship-based. Trust. You decided, you heard what Jesus did, you trusted him, and that's called faith. And then humility, you humbled yourself and said, I need you, God. Humility and faith. These are two relational realities that are not works technically, even though Jesus said, do the first works, but what he's talking about is these, is these relational realities. Work on your relationship with Jesus is what he means. Work on your relationship with Jesus. Do the first works. Go back to when it was just about you spending time with Jesus and having Jesus close to you. Remember that time. That's the way out. Well, how does one, pray tell, work on their relationship with Jesus? That's a great question. What do I do to, to work on my relationship with Jesus? Well, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So time in the word of God is super important if you want to work on your relationship with Jesus. Number two, humility is grown by prayer. 
a devotional time with the Lord or getting alone with your father for real heart-to-heart talks as often as you can is the way to work on your relationship. Anything that stands in the way is something to repent of. The feelings will follow. Because you might not feel like you're accomplishing anything by spending time alone with God, by going for a walk with him, by kneeling down with him. It might not feel, but the feelings follow afterwards. We need to stop playing games and declare, I am a sinner and I live off of nothing else except my relationship with God. He fills me with life and his spirit. That's his promise and his work. My work is to depend on him for that, to humble myself and ask for it. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent, Jesus says. In other words, they will cease from being effective lights to the world if they don't repent. What he's saying here is you cannot serve me in your own strength. Your ideas, your plans, your efforts, and your talents do not do anything for the kingdom of God unless I'm in it. I can remove and I will remove your lampstand if you refuse to end this self-sufficiency. We must draw our strength and power and love from a loving relationship with God, our Father. We can't do things on our own. We must have his light in us to be light ourselves, right? He says, I am the light of the world, and then he says, you are the light of the world if I am in you. That's how it works. We sadly see many churches today that are living this sad reality. They're called a church, but there's no Jesus there. There's no love there. No humility, no humble, faithful devotion to a loving father, just a name, just a building, just a bunch of people because the glory has departed, the light has gone, and Jesus has removed their lampstand from being effective, and now it's just a building of people gathering together, and you could may as well just call it Lions Club or whatever you want to call it. I have, no, I have nothing against Lions Club. I don't even know what they are. So how do we guard against this? Jesus warns them, and he warns us the same way. He says, don't think you are above repenting. Don't think you have it all figured out. When you think your denomination has it all right, you're about to have the glory depart. You're about to become Ichabod. Old Testament reference. We'll cover that another time. Jesus says, be quick to repent. If you don't want to end up like Ephesus, be quick to repent. Have a soft heart. Listen with open ears. Acknowledge that you are the problem, not God. Why is your life unfruitful? Because of you. Not because of God. He promises he'll answer every prayer that's offered in his name. So there's something about your life that is not living in him and in his name if you're unfruitful. It's you. It's us. It's me. We must Be quick to repent. He is God. It's not his problem. He is a loving father. Don't wait to repent. Run back to him. So then look at this though. In verse six, he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Now, it seems like this is out of nowhere, but it's actually directly related with what we're talking about. Jesus is confident that they will repent and return. So he brings up something here very interesting. If Jesus just came up, came to you and said, I'd like you to repent of this, do you think you'd do it? Probably. If he showed up with glory and crowns and everything, I think you'd, you'd listen to him. Well, he's sure that they are going to do that. So he brings a, these, these Nicolaos, these Nicolaitans. Um, the word literally in Greek means to conquer the people means they like to be the boss. This was a group that said they knew more about the Bible and more about God than everyone else. And so people needed to follow them and to serve them in order to receive this secret information that they had. It it was, they liked to be in charge and the boss. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I hate these people. (gasps) Jesus hates people? He hates this group. He can't stand them. So Jesus talked with Ephesus about them not being loving. He says, that's an issue. You need to repent. Then he talks about what they hate. And he says, you're right to hate these guys. When people want to be part of a church in order to control people, Jesus hates that. And we need to also. The church, as we learned last Sunday, is an upside-down kingdom where the servants are the greatest. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to be in control, wants that position of authority, he says, I literally hate them, and it's good for you to do the same thing. We are only here to serve people in our church, and I hope in all the churches of God, to love people. Nicolaitans are only there to love themselves. They want people to submit to them. In 2 Corinthians one twenty four, it says, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. The church, the real church, is an upside-down church where the servants are the greatest, and Jesus is the greatest servant, so he's the most honored of all. And the pastors and leaders of any church should only be servants, serving with their gifts, but not saying, Submit to me all the time. He's saying here in this verse in in 2 Corinthians, seek the Lord for yourself. I'm not your boss. I'm a leader, but I'm not your boss. It's by faith you stand or fall. I am here as only a servant of your faith. I'm here at White Flag to teach you the word so that you can stand in faith, but I don't have control over your lives. Jesus wants people seeking him, not men. Now, how many churches can you think of where that wasn't the case, where the focus was on a man and what the man was saying and not on Jesus Christ himself. I can think of a few. Well, now he goes to the last part of the letter, which is the motivation. Again, this is going to be related to the entire topic of love. This eternal motivation, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here he says, I'm going to motivate you and I'm going to give you some encouragement. I'm going to tell you that the tree of life is what you really need. Well, what does the tree of life grow? And the answer to that is fruit. So fruitfulness. And what does Jesus say? He says, I will give 
you access to fruitfulness. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And Jesus promises that by listening to him and trusting him, you will be nourished from spiritual places, invisible places, with an ability to be loving. That by spending time with him, your soul will grow these little fruits of love. He will provide for the needs of his people from heavenly places. This is his exhortation to them, his encouragement, his motivation. He says, it's all about spending time with me. He will provide the needs from heavenly places. We don't need to look to earthly resources. If you've got a problem with love, do not look to anyone but Jesus Christ. You don't need to read a book, How to Love. You don't. It's Jesus Christ and your relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to pray and wait and overcome. Well, what does it mean to overcome? We need to overcome our natural tendency to trust in ourselves and our works and instead look to Jesus alone. Isn't that what, he, what this entire thing is about? Ephesus, you guys have been trusting in yourselves. Don't. All you need is me, my love, and I'll make you loving. We keep close to him through humility and faith, not through working hard, labor, all those things. And he gives us what we need. Overcoming does not mean stop sinning. Overcoming means overcome your natural dependency upon yourselves and instead trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's the letter. That's the lesson. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing a couple songs. Thank you. So during the songs, what we do is we have communion available right here. Um, and just at your own um, time, when, you, when you're ready, just come down and take the bread and take the juice and, uh, and spend some time with Jesus, kind of connecting with what we talked about, kind of thinking about your own life. And if there's some, I won't even say if, we need more love. We need more love. We need Jesus Christ to... Fill us with his own love. So I encourage you during this time to talk with him about that, to seek to him. Maybe you need to be that prodigal son that runs home and that lets God throw his own arms around you and, uh, and receive what he's going to give. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. God, we come to you and we're, we're very sorry for how we just constantly trust in ourselves. And it's shown through prayerlessness and by the word of God just seeming like a dead book to us. 
Lord, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us and how you died on the cross and how you gave your life. You allowed the Father to turn his back on you and punish you for all our sins. And we specifically remember that so that our hearts can be changed. We need you so much. Lord, we just want to spend some time with you right now to think of nothing else except, Jesus, what you have done for us and what you are doing in our lives. Lord, we want to surrender all thoughts to you, all worries, Lord, all our concerns about the future. Lord, we place them in your hands and we trust you with them. And we just want to live for you and honor you today, honor you right now during this last few minutes of service, our time together as a family. Lord God, we pray that you would just wrap your arms around us. And if there's anyone in here today that has never repented of their sins originally and, and, and confessed confess that they're a sinner and have asked Jesus Christ to forgive, I pray, I beg you to do that now, to just say, I want Jesus to cleanse me of my sin. I want to receive that mm-hmm. offer. I want to be washed clean and forever right in the presence of God. Not because I am a good person, but because Jesus died for me. If you would do that right now, if you would call upon him, rivers of joy and cleansing will flow upon you. They will come to you now. It is real. And Jesus, we pray for every person in here, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, help us to not think we're above repenting. 